everybody and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm really excited for our show today because we're talking about one of my favorite topics, genetics, and another one of my favorite topics, the brain. I'm speaking with Dr. Abraham Palmer, professor of human genetics at the University of Chicago. We'll discuss the heritability of psychiatric disorders and personality, and he'll tell us about his latest study mapping the genetics of amphetamine response. To begin with, how heritable are psychiatric diseases? Do your genes really determine your risk of developing one? We've known for decades that psychiatric disorders are heritable and that they run in families and that if you have family members affected with, say, depression or schizophrenia, then your odds of contracting those diseases are increased relative to the population at large. And so that means that there's probably a genetic component to the risk. And there are twin studies which nicely demonstrate that identical twins are more concordant for these conditions than non-identical twins. And of course, identical twins are exactly genetically identical. Non-identical twins are just siblings, so they're, about, they're sharing about half their genome identical. And so if the identical twins develop any phenotype uh, with a higher concordance than the non-identical twins, again, that's evidence that these things are heritable. The $64,000 question has been, what are the genes that confer risk, and are there a few of them that are common in the population, or there, are there instead a lot of them that are either common in the population, or worse yet, a lot of them that are specific to each family, so that there are not, in fact, uh, common genes that, that are conferring this risk. The harder problem has been identifying the specific genes. So if you consider that we have 20 or 30,000 genes, and some of them are presumably completely irrelevant because they're concerned with making fingernails or some other kind of function, and then some of them are relevant to these disorders, and how do you sort those out? And it's desirable to sort them out because, one, you might be able to predict who would develop a disease. Of course, that's something people might like to know. And two, you might be able to figure out how to treat them, because one of the unique things about these diseases, say, relative to high blood pressure, is that in the case of high blood pressure, we sort of understand some of the key molecular events. We have a pretty good readout, you know, what is the problem? The pressure is too high. With, uh, say, depression, it's much murkier, really. What are the primary events that lead to depression? Is everybody who's depressed suffering from the same triggering events, or are there different kinds of events that can... Uh, conspire to produce these same symptoms. Um, so our ability to treat disorders uh, of the brain are probably in their infancy relative to some other disorders, because it's not so clear what kinds of changes we're trying to affect. And the best thing that we have to go on right now are symptoms, which are tough to work with relative to some other kinds of measures that you might like to have, say molecular sorts of measures that you might like to have. So understanding the genes that predispose to these sorts of diseases may give us a window into sort of the molecular underpinnings of the disease, and there is great hope that that would lead to better treatments. Why is it so difficult to identify genes? 
Why can't we just use the same approach that led us to identify the genes that cause cystic fibrosis and Huntington's disease? Well, the way those genes were discovered is through linkage studies, which are family-based studies. These were good at identifying genes associated with diseases that were monogenic, which means that a mutation in a single gene caused the disease. The problem is that many common diseases, including psychiatric diseases, can be polygenic, meaning that multiple genes might be implicated in a disease process, and those alleles aren't necessarily the same across families. We now use an approach called a genome-wide association study, which allows us to look for variants throughout the genome that might be associated with a phenotype. So genotyping capabilities have really advanced in recent years, and that's not really the problem in identifying genes associated with a disease anymore. One point that's still a little sticky is phenotyping. As we heard from Dr. Palmer, diagnoses aren't always straightforward, and there are often subclasses of a disease. Now he'll tell us more about a quantitative approach to phenotyping. So a, another approach that was proposed way back in the era of linkage and that's been carried over into the GWAS era was that instead of looking at the actual diagnoses, which many people felt are problematic for a number of reasons that we sort of already alluded to, maybe uh, we would be better off, and I can say a little more about what I mean by better off, but maybe we'd be better off looking at what have been called endophenotypes or intermediate phenotypes, and these are traits, generally quantifiable traits. So whereas a disease diagnosis is sort of a binary phenomenon, you have the disease or you don't, a, a continuous trait might be preferable where you could score somebody as being a little better or a little bit worse uh, along some continuum. And you could then score not just affected individuals, but also their non-affected family members who you assumed would be loaded for the genes that predispose to the disease, but they hadn't actually manifested the disease itself. Uh, and so people looked for traits that might be aberrant in these uh, high genetic loaded populations, uh, thinking that maybe it would be either easier to understand the genetics, that is, less genes would influence them, that maybe these endophenotypes would be more heritable than the disease phenotypes themselves, uh, that they might be more tractable in some other way, that we would have more insights into the biology that ought to cause the endophenotypes and therefore might be able to better choose uh, causal genes within intervals that were identified. A number of arguments have been put forward about why this might be preferable. Though endophenotypes are more elegant and sensitive than higher-order disease, Dr. Palmer warns that it's much more difficult to achieve comparable sample sizes using this approach, which can compromise power. Nonetheless, he's recently published intriguing work on the endophenotype amphetamine response. So uh, many people are aware that amphetamine has a number of physiological and behavioral effects on humans. And one of the things that people report, you can't really observe, but people report subjectively is a sense of euphoria when they take amphetamine. And whereas you might imagine, it would be natural to think that everybody experiences that euphoria and that they experience it to the same degree, that doesn't seem to be the case. And there are some modest twin studies demonstrating the heritability or suggesting the heritability of the subjective response to amphetamine, uh, so that some people experience a lot of euphoria, some people experience some euphoria, some people really don't, and they uh, have more of a sense of anxiety um, uh, with, with really without the euphoria. So some people, when you ask them at the end of a session, would say, I wouldn't take that drug again if you gave me the choice. And those studies have been done, uh, including our study, in a situation where it's a double-blind, placebo-controlled study, so that, in fact, the subject doesn't know when they got drug and when they didn't get drug. They don't know what drug they were going to get. 
and the experimenter also doesn't know whether or not they got drug on that particular session. So those are efforts to try to remove uh, people's expectations about how the drug will make them feel so that we can more directly study really how the drug makes them feel from a, a neurobiological standpoint. So uh, we were interested really in, in the subjective uh, euphoria caused by amphetamine because we thought that it might be relevant to drug abuse. And the reason that we first started studying it is that uh, we know from both longitudinal and retrospective studies that people's early experiences with a drug are predictive of their uh, likelihood to go on and abuse that drug. And that, the way I said it, it sounds very scholarly, but let's just step back from it. People who like the way a drug makes them feel go on to keep taking that drug. And of course, if you go on to keep taking a drug, you may become uh, dependent or addicted to the drug. And if you don't like the way it makes you feel, you might be less inclined to take it again, and that would tend to protect you from it. So it's intuitive that that would be true. And in fact, there's nice data demonstrating that it is true. What hadn't been examined previously, though, uh, at any level of detail, is what are the particular genes or alleles of those genes, versions of those genes, that predispose somebody to like or not like the way amphetamine makes them feel. And so uh, almost a decade ago, Harriet DeWitt, who's here at the University of Chicago, and I uh, set out to study that in a systematic way with direct parallels to animal studies that were going on in my lab, also of the way that uh, animals would respond to those drugs, amphetamine and methamphetamine and other related stimulant drugs. It is exactly what it sounds. People were recruited. These are healthy human subjects, a lot of them college students recruited with on-campus posters and Craigslist ads and the like. These are pretty carefully screened subjects. And actually, logistically, that's one of the difficult things for Harriet's lab about doing these studies is to get people that uh, meet all of the exclusion criteria. Uh, and then the subjects come in for several sessions, and uh, they arrive and are asked to ingest a, a capsule. And they don't know what the capsule contains. You know, we've told them these are the kinds of drugs that you might be given, but we specifically don't want to say you're going to get this drug, because then we imagine that they would have certain expectations about what that drug is going to do, and that would color the way they answered the questions. So at what we call time zero, they ingest the capsule, and then we start collecting data every half hour about how they're feeling. And these are very structured questionnaires, several, some of which are decades old, and they're meant to do exactly this, to capture differences in the subjective state that uh, are caused by drugs. So we end up with data at multiple time points for different doses. So in the study that we're talking about right now, there were three doses, 5, 10, and 20 milligrams of drug, as well as vehicle. And so we have, at different time points and on different days at these different doses, how that drug made people feel. There's also other data. So we have physiological parameters that we collect and behavioral parameters, uh, some of which we haven't fully analyzed yet, some of which are still sort of waiting in the queue. His team then collected blood from every participant to genotype each of them at over a million sites across the genome that are known to vary between individuals. They asked whether individuals of a certain genotype responded more or less strongly to amphetamines. Though none of their associations reached genome-wide significance, which is based on highly stringent standards of significance, they got creative and involved data from other studies of psychiatric disorders to help them understand their results. So we then looked to see whether or not areas that seem to show some evidence for an association with amphetamine liking, really the euphoric response to amphetamine, whether or not they also showed more uh, evidence of association than you might expect under chance alone with psychiatric diseases like schizophrenia and ADHD 
And we focused on those two diseases in particular because both schizophrenia and ADHD have an important dopaminergic component. So schizophrenia is treated with drugs that antagonize or block the effect of the neurotransmitter dopamine. And ADHD is actually treated with drugs like and including amphetamine, which cause the release of dopamine into the synapse, that little space between two neurons that they use to communicate with one another. And so because both of them are treated with dopaminergic drugs, people have speculated that maybe part of the pathology also has to do with a dysfunction of the dopaminergic system. And in particular, the hypothesis has been advanced that dopamine might, in some sense, be a hyper-dopaminergic condition where there's too much dopamine, and you can then ameliorate the symptoms by blocking dopamine using these drugs that block uh, the receptors where dopamine acts. And ADHD, in contrast, might be a hypo-dopaminergic disorder, and so what you need to do with these people is give them a stimulant drug like amphetamine that would cause the release of dopamine and that that would ameliorate the symptoms. And so we thought, well, that's interesting because what we have here is data about how amphetamine makes, makes people feel, and we know that that's got a lot to do with dopaminergic signaling also. And so we thought maybe we'll see some of the same genetic signal coming up in our modestly powered data set and these relatively better powered data sets about these diseases. Uh, and so to do that, you can imagine pretty easily ranking at each of these million locations for the strength of the evidence that they're associated with the phenotype. And we use p-values for that. So just a kind of a probability-based statistic about how likely you are to see that association by chance alone. Uh, and about that time, we started to think uh, about what it might mean if this overlap was a real phenomenon, was a real genetic phenomenon. And one of the things that occurred to us was that if it was a real and biologically meaningful phenomenon, then there should be some consistent direction to it. That is, the allele or the version uh, of the polymorphism that makes you like amphetamine more should consistently make you either more prone to become schizophrenic or less prone. And actually, I could think of pretty nice arguments why it would do either. And so one of the reasons you do an experiment is to find out which of those possible arguments is correct. Now, of course, if we were really just seeing an artifact or something that had no true relationship to biology, we wouldn't expect to see any preponderance of either concordant ones, that is, liking amphetamine makes you more likely to be schizophrenic, or discordant ones, the opposite. You would expect to see them kind of split equally between those two categories. Uh, but what we saw there was very encouraging. We saw that it was really a big overrepresentation of what we called the discordant SNPs. So alleles that make you like amphetamine more make you less likely to develop schizophrenia. There was no enrichment, completely expected amount of overlap among the concordant SNPs, that is, those that uh, make you like amphetamine more make you more likely to become schizophrenic. Uh, and so that said to us that, one, the overlap phenomenon seemed to be credible, and two, it starts to give us a biological insight, which is that there's something about this perturbation of the dopamine system, what you get when you take amphetamine, uh, and schizophrenia risk, whereby people who are at risk for developing schizophrenia are actually less susceptible, at least, to those euphoric effects. Now, whether that uh, could mean many things, it could mean that they have a less responsive dopamine system, it could mean that the excess dopamine makes them feel bad in some way. Mm. You know, it could mean that it has negative effects on them. But at any rate, it starts to tell us something about what's different about not just the brain of a schizophrenic, because remember, none of our, none of our subjects were schizophrenic, uh, what's different about the brain of somebody who has a little more or a little less loading genetic predisposition to develop schizophrenia. Uh, and even though it's not nearly enough loading in those individuals to actually cause disease, 
their brain is functioning a little bit differently, even in this acute laboratory-based uh, task where we give them the amphetamine. I see. Okay. So that was the direction you found with schizophrenia, but you, you did the same study with an ADHD. Yeah, with, with ADHD, yeah. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Right. That's right, yeah. yeah. And what direction did you see the um, association? Yeah, with? so that's interesting. So I sort of set up the straw man for you where I said that schizophrenia is treated with drugs that block dopamine and ADHD is treated with drugs that increase dopaminergic signaling. And so you might think, like we did, that we should see the opposite direction. So mm -hmm. first of all, we saw overall enrichment. We saw an overall excess of, of SNPs that had low p-values in both the amphetamine liking data set and ADHD overall. And then when we looked at directionality, as I say, you might assume that we would see the opposite. So now it would be the concordant SNPs. If you like amphetamine, you're more likely to get ADHD because after all, these people are opposite ends of some uh, imagined continuum of dopaminergic uh, 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 signaling. But that's not what we saw. In fact, what we saw is that, again, it was the discordant SNPs that really were driving this enrichment phenomenon. So again, people liking amphetamine more are less likely to have ADHD as well as less likely to have schizophrenia. Uh, and to us, and I think a lot of other people, that, that part of the result was really a surprise, but I think a really informative surprise. I think it challenges us to think in a little more sophisticated way about the role of dopaminergic signaling in these two disorders. I asked Abe whether this success has encouraged him to study endophenotypes for other diseases. It, it has, absolutely. And, you know, there's two ways that I'm thinking about that right now. One is I, I'm working with people, Harriet DeWitt and others, on other endophenotypes. And so those are ongoing studies to look at impulsivity. Impulsivity turns out, you, you might think you know what it means, but it turns out to mean a lot of things at the laboratory level. So you can have sort of impulsive uh, choice uh, where you ask people to make hypothetical choices and impulsive action where you're actually testing more like people's reflexes and their attentional processes. Um, so those are things that can be nicely assayed in humans and they are sort of endophenotypes or at least could be considered endophenotypes. And Harriet has been collecting, uh, I think she has almost a thousand people now and has DNA on those people. So we're getting ready to start genotyping those people. We'd like to get more. We'd like to get an even bigger sample, and we're looking at various ways that we might, for instance, collect samples from people via the Internet so that we could increase the throughput and maybe have an even larger sample size. In and of itself, impulsivity is not really a disease. It's, it's why we're talking about it as an endophenotype, but it's probably related to a number of disease states where impulse control is a component of the disease. And so we would love to get at the genetics of that both for its own reasons and also because we think it might map onto the genetics of, of diseases that people are trying to treat. We've now talked a lot about the heritability of psychiatric disorders, but what about personality? The distinction between extreme personalities and pathological disorders is already a difficult problem, and genetic information may further complicate matters. Imagine a future scenario where everyone's DNA is fully sequenced and a patient comes in with a genotype that is strongly associated with bipolar disorder or depression. He may consider himself healthy, perhaps a personality extreme, but now his doctor is worried about the possibility of a serious condition. It's a tough problem. Here are Dr. Palmer's thoughts. There are some people that don't want to believe that there's a biological basis to personality or to behavior. I find it hard to defend that belief in, in view of the data that we already have, but I understand that some people are just fundamentally uncomfortable thinking about the world that way. Mm. I often bring up to them studies from the mid-90s where there was a family where the men 
and uh, family somewhere in Europe, northern Europe, I don't remember exactly. Uh, the men had a mutation in uh, MAO, MAOA or MAOB, monoamine oxidase, right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so they metabolize catecholamines in a very abnormal way. And it turns out it's on the X chromosome. So the men who inherit this allele have only one copy. And if it's the broken copy, they manifest the phenotype. And the phenotype was really outrageous behavior. Uh, lots of very aggressive, violent behavior. Uh, my point, though, is that it was entirely traceable to this one mutation. So one thing broken about your genome and your behavior is very, very different. And so you could imagine that maybe that's a completely isolated case and that there's no more subtle version of, say, a mutation in that gene or in other genes where the effect is much smaller, but it still changes behavior in a more subtle way. But it's hard, I think, in light of that kind of evidence to think that, that, that you know, there are only a very few instances where it's a completely extreme phenotype, but that there aren't more subtle uh, genetic variants that create more subtle changes in personality. So... So yes, I think, so I think, first of all, is there a genetic basis to behavior? There has to be. Um, there are big studies using sort of the, like the big five, you know, these classic psychology personality instruments. And actually the same data set, you're smiling. <laughs> Our listeners can't tell, but you're smiling. <laughs> um, I'm curious about this, yes. Yeah, okay, great. So uh, Harriet DeWitt, uh, who was the collaborator who did a lot of the data collection for this study, uh, used, and I think it maybe was the big five personality inventory on the subjects. So we have that data. And we were then able to contribute to a big international group <clears throat> that has maybe 27 data sets where there's genome-wide genotype data and personality data. And they had to do a lot of steps because there are different versions of these personality questionnaires and there's two or three, you know, different flavors of them. And then each one has two or three different visions. So they had to sort of standardize the phenotyping, which is a non-trivial effort. And I imagine it took them a lot of time. But they then have, I think it's about 50,000 people where they have genome-wide genotype data and personality data. So the bad news is, from their perspective, the heritability of that trait does not appear to be extremely high. So twin studies had estimated it to be pretty high, 40-50%. But then you can calculate what's called the chip heritability, which is the heritability that can actually be attributed to the genotypes you've measured with that chip, with that microarray that's used to do the SNP genotyping. And the chip heritability is much lower than that. Now, we see that for all disorders, and a common interpretation is that some of the alleles that are influencing the trait are very rare and therefore aren't captured by the chip. That's sort of the, the stock interpretation. Uh, but nevertheless, when you have large sample sizes, chip heritabilities of like 25 or 33% are getting to be pretty common. Uh, and the chip heritability here, I think, maybe was around 17% or 10%, significantly lower. These are data that are still under review, I, I think not yet published. Um, but non-zero, so there was some heritability to this trait. Uh, additionally, even with a sample size of 50,000, possibly because of the heterogeneity of the, the phenotype that was used, they didn't have anything that they could call unambiguously significant. So there was nothing genome-wide significant, even with that really impressively large data set. Um, uh, I, I think maybe if they had 50,000 people that had been ascertained in exactly the same way from one coherent population, they, they would have had a lot more power and maybe would be finding something already. Um, so there, is, there are genetics for personality, but there may not be giant smoking gun, big effect alleles out there for, for personality that are both common and have a huge effect. Uh, so that's maybe another part of this. Uh, the third part is people who a psychiatrist might say have a disorder, 
but the person themselves doesn't wish to consider it a disorder because they consider it part of their personality. And I think that's a totally legitimate view and controversy. Uh, one of the defining, you know, one of the criteria that you need to make a diagnosis is that it's interfering with the person's life and the person's, you know, professional and personal life. So if somebody uh, has a condition that someone might call a disorder, but which they consider to be part of their personality, I guess the question is, are they comfortable with the fact that this condition may or may not be causing problems in their, you know, professional and personal life? Um, that may be where you start to cross into disorder, where the person starts to ask for treatment or come to a doctor saying, is there something you can do to make me a little bit more like everybody else because I'm having problems being the way that I am? Um, but there are certainly going to be people that want to live out their life in the, the, you know, the way that they are and uh, they want to avoid treatment. And if they can make a go of it, I think that's terrific. I'm cautious in saying too much about this because, in fact, you know, for instance, bipolar disorder has a lifetime suicide risk that's not trivial. And, you know, it, it's a risky thing to go untreated and to have a disorder like that. I, I happen to know a little bit more about anorexia nervosa, where I think the lifetime mortality due to that dis diagnosis is maybe 20 or 25 percent. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, some of these things are really very serious, and somebody who doesn't want to view them as a disease could put themselves at risk because not viewing them as a disease and having the thing go untreated would presumably make them more at risk for one of these really bad outcomes. We've talked about a lot of serious issues today, but we couldn't end the show without having a little bit of fun. So how much do you trust these people, Sebastian Zollner? Oh yeah, sure, I know Sebastian Zollner, right. Because I might, I might give you a quick quiz. Ma yeah, okay, sure, and I know Margit too. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, partially just because I want people to hear these numbers, we're going to play Guess the Heritability. Oh, okay, sure. These are 2009 numbers. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, it's a heritability game show. Go ahead. Yeah, right. Perfect. What prize do I get, by the way, if I get any of these You right? can keep the paper. I can keep the review paper. Okay, that's not a very good prize. Um, guess the Heritability, Dr. Oh, Palmer, okay. of schizophrenia. 80%. Yeah, 70 to 85. All right, okay, good. Very good. And... Um, how about depression? 40%. <laughs> Spot on. Okay, great. And, and uh, bonus, can you, can you get the prevalence of depression? The prevalence of depression? Uh, lifetime prevalence? Lifetime prevalence. Lifetime prevalence is going to be uh, 1 in 8. 1 in 8. Is that about 17%? 12%. Okay, 17% is even higher. Yeah, okay. Uh, about that, right, yeah. which is massive. Yeah, right, sure. Um, it's like 1 in 6 or something. Autism. Autism, what? The, the heritability? The heritability. Uh, heritability is going to be 80% again. So we've got 90, but the okay, numbers may sure. have changed yeah. because I know a lot well, of autism yeah, right. research. Um, let's do... Yeah, the game I'm playing, just for clarity, is guess what they said in their paper. Guess, okay. Right? Yeah, okay. okay yeah, just right. for clarity. Yeah. Um, how about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD? The, pro the heritability? The heritability. 35%. It is sixty-two ninety. Really? Ooh. Yeah. Okay, that's the first one I was truly wrong about. And yeah. and the prevalence may mm -hmm. be interesting. I think this is controversial, but prevalence of ADHD. Uh, boy, it's, uh, we're we're, re we're we're on a trajectory to to have everybody have ADHD in about a hundred <laughs> years. I know. Uh, so I think at the time this was written, it was one in ten. Yeah, that's, so 8%. 8%, right. okay, yeah, yeah, right. About right. Yeah. Do, do you really think that everybody has a little bit of ADHD? I, I'm... 
No, I don't. Okay, so here's the trouble, is I think that schools, it's very hard to be a teacher of elementary school students, because the kids are bouncing off the walls, and I don't envy that job, you know, it's, I mean, it's, My it's, an, important, it's an important job, <laughs> yeah. but it's very hard. Uh, so then you have the kids that are most disruptive, and uh, it's easy to pathologize that, and it's true, probably, that if they're given a little bit of methylphenidate, they will behave better, and it will, they will be more manageable. And so as our desire to have manageable kids increases, and as people see the change that happens when you give these drugs to a kid, it seems like, wow, there must have been something wrong because they're now so much easier to deal with. And so our definition can broaden, and I can easily see how people in a school system, especially if they're not reflecting on it very carefully, uh, and the system's overburdened and et cetera, would see the positive, from their perspective, results of medicating some of these kids and would start to seek more and more kids to get medicated. We'll start to recommend to parents that they get medicated, and the physicians have happy parents coming back. They write a prescription, and three months later, the parents report back that everything's much better. And so naturally, they're a little more inclined to write another prescription next time. So, I mean, I, that's where I see, not that there isn't a real problem, but I can see lots of factors that would create a drive to broaden the diagnosis. Okay, so from my end, that kind of wraps up what I wanted to talk yeah, about. Sure. Is there any, do you have any last things you want to say? No, I, I, I think that was, a, that was a nice uh, and thorough interview. Okay, great. Yeah, great. So, yeah. A. Palmer on psychiatric genetics, um, and we will stop here. Thank you, Abe. Great, thanks very much. Again, that was Dr. Abraham Palmer, professor at the University of Chicago. His study on amphetamine response was published last month in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That's all from us today. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon, and keep on grokking.